This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at area code 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. An explanation and defense of the terms of communion adopted by the community of dissenters, together with an introduction containing some remarks on the propriety of terms of communion in general, the whole intended to obviate some modern objections and to satisfy the minds of those who are willing to be informed on the subject by the Reformed Presbytery, as read by Leah Domes. Explanation. Introduction containing some remarks on the propriety of terms of communion in general. When mankind disposed to drop their prejudices and to allow the subject a dispassionate consideration, it is presumed that the propriety of explicit terms of admission to the privileges of the Church might easily be discerned. They seem, indeed, to result from the very nature of society in this imperfect state. By society, we understand a number of reasonable beings, accountable to God and to one another, all closely united on some general principles in which they agree, on which they resolve mutually to act for the good of the whole. It is self-evident that they can never properly cooperate in the prosecution of the same great designs unless there be a good understanding amongst them. But it is not easy to conceive how this can properly subsist without a clear and distinct statement of the general principles in which they agree and of the important ends which they have in view. Hence it is that all societies, less or greater, civil or religious, have the respective regulations the approbation of which is made the condition of membership and of participating in the peculiar privileges of the society. So very powerful is the law of necessity in this case that in all ages of the world its operation on the minds of men hath been uniformly felt. Now in ecclesiastic society, the great object of public creeds and explicit terms of communion is to state and explain the general principles in which the members of the association are agreed in order to promote a good understanding and a proper harmony amongst them. The adoption of terms, therefore, seems to be highly requisite. Nor doth this mode of reasoning concerning their propriety in the least savor of will worship. For it must ever be remembered that no terms in any church are warrantable unless they be plainly sanctioned by, Thus saith the Lord. But when the matter of them is found to be scriptural, 
we thus prove them to be, like every other part of a holy religion, a reasonable service. It is objected if terms of communion as you grant should always be, for the matter of them scriptural, why state them in our own language at all? Can we express them any better than they are already expressed in the sacred oracles? To this we reply that if mankind in general properly understood the scriptures at first instance and were disposed rightly to apply them, we should certainly say Amen to the doctrine of the objection. But it obviously proceeds on a very false supposition, namely that all in general who apply for admission to the privileges of a church may be expected properly to understand and apply the scriptures without the diligent use of ordinary means for their assistance. The mournful experience, however, of the church in every age and daily observation assure us that the scriptures are very liable to abuse and are often grossly perverted. The trumpet blown in Zion, therefore, must give a distinct sound. Were the Roman Catholic, the Episcopalian, the Independent, and the Presbyterian to be asked if they were willing to receive the Bible as a rule of their conduct in their church capacity, they would all answer in the affirmative. But it doth not follow that their very opposite modes of church government are substantially the same and equally agreeable to the revealed will of God. The Arian, the Socinian, the Arminian, the Antinomian, and the Calvinist are all equally ready to aver that the Bible is the standard of their faith and practice. Must we hence conclude that their several doctrines are the same? Or would there be even a shadow of consistency in such a mixed association of communicants sitting down at the same table under the open profession of believing in the same Lord and of holding the one faith and the one baptism of his prescription? To instance one particular out of many, suppose a Roman Catholic and a Protestant to be both asked if they believe in the doctrine of the Holy Scriptures concerning the administration and reception of the Lord's Supper. None of them would hesitate to answer yes they would with equal readiness subscribe these words in the original institution, This is my body. We could not certainly from this conclude that the absurd doctrine of transubstantiation and the Protestant doctrine that the bread only signifies or represents Christ's body are much the same. Nor is it easy to see the smallest propriety or consistency in such persons holding communion together at the Lord's table. But if the scriptures must be made the terms of communion at first instance, or without any explanation and statement of truth in our own language, we shall soon find ourselves obliged to admit persons of diametrically opposite faith and practice. Explanation is surely necessary. And our public creeds and terms of communion were never viewed in any other light, even by those who had been most warmly attached to them, than as subordinate helps for our right understanding and applying the scriptures. We never formed the remotest thought of substituting them in the place of the Bible, or putting them on a level with it. But when they are evidently founded upon and agreeable to the word of God, 
the manner in which all our subordinate standards are uniformly qualified. We reckon it our duty to adopt them and faithfully to adhere unto them. It is observable that almost all the public creeds, confessions, and explicit terms of communion take it for granted that these confessions and the word of God are at variance with each other. They suppose the one to require what the other forbids, and hence they state the question whether we should obey God rather than men. But if God and men require substantially the same thing, where is the inconsistency of obeying both in their own place? A warm zeal of the Holy Scriptures and a strong attachment to sound creeds and terms of communion are so far from implying any contradiction that the one necessarily involves and loudly proclaims the other. He who, in the time of danger, uses the best means in his power for the defense and protection of the injured certainly proves the best friend. While many are perverting the scriptures to their own and others' destruction, we should do the most we can to have them kept pure and entire. It will be said, the native force of truth and the power of God, who is the author of the scriptures, will keep them pure and make them successful, independent of our creeds and confessions. But God, in his infinite wisdom, hath been pleased to work by means adapted to the end and to instruct us by men of like passions with ourselves. Besides, upon the principle of expressing terms of communion in the language of Scripture only, would it not follow that men were equally restricted to employ none other than the language of the Holy Spirit in all their social acts of religion, such as offering their joint prayers to God and administering the ordinances of the gospel? Nay, in the perusal of the Scriptures themselves, would we not be restricted to the necessity of resorting unto the original words of inspiration without daring to use even the most just and correct translation? But it is obvious and hath often been proved by facts that the grand aim of this objection is first to demolish the strong bulwarks of orthodox terms of communion distinctly ascertained, and then, by the bare sound of unexplained scriptural phrases, to establish the cause of error the more easily. The propriety of explicit terms of admission to the privileges of the Christian Church will also appear by turning our attention to the following and such like very solemn and divinely inspired injunctions. I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 1.10 Philippians 1.27 from the express words of the Holy Spirit in these passages, it is abundantly plain that the union positively required consists not merely in worshipping together within the same walls or in sitting down together at the same holy table of the Lord. It evidently comprehends a union in sentiment, 
and in the open profession of the truth as it is in Jesus. They must be perfectly joined together in the same mind and must speak the same things. But in every period of the church, false doctrines have actually been propagated, misunderstandings and divisions have taken place. How error which the adversaries of truth have taught and propagated in their own language and in their own way can be either consistently or successfully refuted and the opposite truths fairly stated so as to form a proper contrast unless we meet our opponents on their own ground and also use human language in exhibiting a faithful testimony for the truth. It is not easy to see. If we should simply refer them to the scriptures without any reasoning on the subject, they would reckon themselves secure in the possession of their erroneous opinions. Nor is it less difficult to discern how divisions can be properly prevented or misunderstandings removed without clearly stating and explaining our sentiments. We cannot otherwise consistently walk together as those who are agreed endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, and firmly believing that there is one body and one Spirit, even as we are called in one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Ephesians 4, 3 and 5 It is purely in subserviency to this scriptural union that we insist on having distinct terms of communion. Meanwhile, we do not, as some modern writers allege, present to our minds a description of a society without any difference of judgment whatever in religion, and studying to believe whatever is the practice of their brethren, rather than what the word of God enjoins concerning affection and Christian fellowship. We are sensible that while men are in this imperfect state, some diversity of opinion may still be expected to exist, even after all the means which can be used to prevent it. But this, instead of weakening, greatly strengthens our argument. While it evidently shows the propriety of employing at least all the means in our power in order to prevent this diversity. As to believing whatever is the practice of our brethren, we indeed wish to contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints, and to be followers of them who, through faith and practice, inherit the promises. It is not, however, the practice either of our reforming forefathers of old, or of our brethren in our own times, that we make the formal reason of our belief. We consider the law of God as obliging both them and us to think the same things and to speak the same things, holding fast the form of sound words and keeping the ordinances as they have been delivered to us. While we study, by all means possible, to have our own and our brethren's faith and practice harmonizing together, we constantly contend that both theirs and ours must be in unison with the infallible standard of truth and duty. We shall likely be told Though the Apostle in the above and similar passages of Scripture required Christians assiduously to press after the exalted attainment of unanimity in the faith, yet he never can be understood as suspending the enjoyment of church fellowship among them, 
on such unanimity. For the elsewhere enjoineth upon them the duty of mutual forbearance in some matters of faith and practice, wherein they might happen to disagree. Wherefore, the condition of fellowship seems rather to have been unanimity in fundamental articles only, and an agreement to forbear in less matters when the sentiment might be various. But it is evident that this objection proceeds upon a capital mistake with regard to the proper objections of the Christian forbearance intended by the Apostle. These are not matters of faith and practice to be believed and observed, but such weaknesses and infirmities of temper as are inseparable from this imperfect state, together with the personal injuries which one Christian may receive from another. Accordingly, applying the word to such objects, he thus exhorteth Christians, forbearing one another and forgiving one another, if any man have a quarrel against any. Colossians 3.13 From the frequent occurrence of these objects in social life, the Christian will find ample scope for this forbearance. His charity as to these will bear all things, and cover a multitude of sins, while his well-directed zeal will prompt him to contend earnestly for all the faith once delivered to the saints. The doctrine of modern forbearance among persons of opposite belief, inducing them to form a compromise in which they mutually agree to differ, and never more to mention discording tenets, leads, in its native tendency, to the suppression of truth and the lasting concealment of so many articles of faith as the jarring sentiments may happen to hinge upon. And what is the amount of this but to banish forever from the faith of the church a great number of precious truths contained in the word of God and designed by him for the spiritual comfort and edification of his people and all this to obtain a Catholic union amongst professing Christians at the expense of losing sacred truth. An agreement to divide in matters of faith and practice sounds ill with the injunction, be perfectly joined together in the same mind. The argument taken from the believing Jews being allowed communion in the Christian church while they still retain some of the old ceremonies will not help the matter. These ceremonies are originally of divine institution, a circumstance which never can apply to any human invention. And besides, there was a positive permission under certain restrictions granted by the church's head to the believing Jews to observe for a time some of the ancient ceremonies respecting meats and drinks till they should be better instructed on the subject of their total repeal by the death of the glorious surety. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him that eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. Romans 14.3 Our Lord's doctrine in his epistles to the churches of Asia evidently favors distinct and explicit terms of admission into the fellowship of the Christian church, in all succeeding ages. As a true and faithful witness is himself 
the glorious author of these epistles, no reason is left for disputing the truth or propriety of what they contain. And as they are all concluded with this solemn injunction, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. It is equally certain that what things they inculcate were written for our learning, and in their true spirit and scope are no less applicable now than they were then. But the church of Pergamos is sharply reproved for retaining in her communion those who held the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast the stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit fornication, as also those who held the hateful doctrine of the Nicolaitans. The church of Thyatira, in like manner, receives very severe reprehension from him who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, because she suffered that woman Jezebel, who called herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce his servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed to idols. The meaning of which seems to be that this church did not properly call to account and openly exclude from her communion some person or class of persons within her jurisdiction who, in respect of extensive influence, lascivious practice, and cunning craftiness, lying in wait to deceive, remarkably resembled Jezebel of old whence the following things are abundantly obvious. First, that the public and regularly installed office-bearers of the church, though they have not in themselves originally any authoritative power, yet they have a ministerial power, derived from the church's glorious head, in virtue of which it is their province, acting in his name and according to the plain revelations of his will to judge and determine concerning the doctrine, worship, discipline, and government of his house. If they were not really clothed with such a power, they could never consistently be blamed for not exercising it. Secondly, that the church's testimony should be clearly stated in defense of truth and holiness and should also be faithfully pointed not only against all error and immorality in general, but in a special manner against those errors and immoralities which more remarkably prevail where providence hath ordered her lot. The ensnaring doctrines of Balaam and of the Nicolaitans were prevalent in Pergamos and Thyatira, and should therefore have met with the most pointed opposition from these churches. While the discipline of the Lord's house should have been faithfully and impartially executed upon those who propagated them. Thirdly, that every true church of Christ ought to exclude from her fellowship all who hold and propagate erroneous opinions or are chargeable with immoral practices, the Spirit of God speaking in the Scriptures, always being the supreme judge. While the priest's lips should keep knowledge and they should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Fourthly, that the toleration of error and immorality in whatever shape these may appear is a thing expressly condemned in the scriptures. 
the God of truth himself, by reason of his glorious perfection, neither can nor will do it. For any mortal, then, to take so much upon him, must certainly argue the highest presumption. Whether he be clothed with civil or with ecclesiastic authority, it must be extremely arrogant to assume a power of defending, supporting, or maintaining what the universal and unerring standard of right and wrong positively prohibits. The solemn charge against the ministry of the church in Thyatira was, Thou sufferest. In the spirit of modern objections, we might expect to hear it said, Why were not these persons who held the doctrines of Balaam and of the Nicolaitans allowed to think for themselves in matters of religion? Might it not have been granted that their lips and their consciences were their own, and that no man was lord over them? Nay, but who art thou, O man, that repliest against the plain dictates of the Holy Spirit, speaking in the Scriptures? Though no man or class of men be lord of another's conscience, yet the God of truth, who hath favored us with a very full and clear revelation of his will, is assuredly the Lord of all our consciences, and no man can ever consistently plead a right to think, speak, or act differently from what he hath prescribed in his word. And be it so that there is considerable difficulty in ascertaining the true meaning of Scripture, and that every one will be disposed to put his own gloss upon it, and so leave us as much in the dark as ever with respect to the path of duty. The only just inference we can draw from this is that we have the greater need to double our diligence and to call in the aid of expositions, confessions, explicit terms of communion, and every other rational mean which may be helpful to remove the difficulty and for enabling us to understand one another. But if, from the doctrine that we cannot easily bring men to think and speak alike concerning the meaning of the all-perfect standard, this inference were to be drawn, that nothing should be positively fixed, but every one left to believe and to profess as he may find cause. We then go upon the very absurd supposition that there is no reality in things, independent of men's opinion and fancy, nor any possibility of rightly understanding what the Spirit saith unto the churches, which leads us at once into downright skepticism, a most dangerous extreme, to which many of the loose modern doctrines evidently tend. He must be very little acquainted with his Bible, who doth not grant that its contents in general are incomparably more plain and easy to be understood than are the contents of the statute books in the kingdoms of this world. Yet every, the meanest and most illiterate subject in the kingdom, must regulate his conduct according to the laws of his country, or suffer for his transgression. The authority of Jehovah is, unquestionably, superior to that of any earthly prince while those things which immediately concern our faith and practice as Christians and members of the Gospel Church and with regard to which the solemn authority of God is interposed are of infinitely more importance than our temporal affairs. 
and seeing the Lord hath given us a very full and clear revelation of his will, with the fairest opportunities and best means of understanding it to plead a liberty, of turning it into a thousand shapes and accommodating it to such faith and practice as every one may choose to prescribe for himself, is certainly expressive of very little regard to the King of Saints. To the above, we shall only at present add the divinely authorized practice of the Apostolic Church, from which may be drawn an invincible argument to prove the propriety of explicit terms in admitting to Christian privileges in the house of God. When the Church's risen Lord, in virtue of having received all power in heaven and in earth, sent forth his disciples in their public capacity, he authorized them to administer the seals of the new covenant or testament in his blood. He at the same time gave it in solemn charge to accompany the administration of these seals with the instructing of the nations in the knowledge of divine truth. And it is observable that they were not to content themselves with teaching them one or a few leading truths which might be called fundamental, but all the different articles of his revealed will in general, so far as they had opportunity and circumstances might require. Teaching them, says he, to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Matthew 28:20. To this rule, prescribed by their adored master, the apostles were ever careful to conform their public administrations. On the memorable day of Pentecost, when their hearers were pricked in their heart and said unto them, What shall we do? The term of admission to the privilege of baptism was, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the Holy Ghost. As much as to say, in faith dependence upon him who is exalted to be a prince and a savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, and with holy contrition of soul, renounce your former errors and abominable practices. Change your former sentiments and conduct. Receive Christ as made of God unto you wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Embrace the Christian religion in all its peculiar doctrines. On this footing, you shall receive the privileges of the church. Accordingly, it is added, they that gladly received his word were baptized. From the preceding part of the chapter, we learn that this word which they received was a plain sermon concerning Christ in his mediatorial capacity and work, clearly exhibiting him as the once crucified but now exalted Lord of his church, the Savior, who is delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. See Acts 2. After the Ethiopian eunuch had heard an important and very instructive passage of the Old Testament concerning the true Messiah properly explained to him and had given suitable attention to a precious gospel sermon delivered from it, he expressed his wish to receive the ordinance of baptism. The reply was, If thou believest with all thine heart thou mayest. The eunuch answered, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. After this profession, they went down both into the water, 
both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Acts 8:37 and 38. Cornelius and his company solemnly and openly professed, Now we are all here present before God to hear all things that are commanded thee of God. In this day of the Redeemer's power, they were a willing people, professing themselves ready to receive and obey every law of the God of heaven so soon as it was made known to them by the mouth of his servant. The Holy Ghost fell on all them who heard the word, namely the affecting sermon concerning Christ and him crucified. Then answered Peter, Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Acts 10 Still we see the greatest care is taken to have the subjects of the ordinance properly instructed in the mysteries of the Christian religion and to obtain from them an open profession of their faith in Christ and of their ready subjection to the laws of his kingdom. With regard to the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, the apostles in their terms of admission were no less pointed and explicit. Continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine was by them inseparably connected with church, fellowship in breaking of bread, i.e., as the best expositors ordinarily understand the passage in partaking of the Lord's Supper, Acts 2.42. They were ever anxious that this holy ordinance should be guarded against abuses occasioned by divisions, heresies, or gross profanity. They admitted none to their Redeemer's love feast, but such as professed their ready subjection to the comely order of his house, and were careful to examine themselves before they should eat of that bread and drink of that cup. They were abundantly sensible that he who eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. But none can truly be said to discern the Lord's body unless they properly understand as well as seriously believe the gospel scheme of salvation through the complete satisfaction of Christ in his people's room. Fully consistent with this is the Apostle's holy zeal that none should be introduced into the church nor suffer to embody with her who are erroneous in their opinions and wish to mix their own inventions with the institutions of Christ. Speaking of such, false brethren unawares brought in who came in privily to spy out their liberty which they had in Christ Jesus that they might bring them into bondage, says he to whom we give place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Galatians 2, 4 and 5 It cannot, therefore, we presume, be refused that soundness in the faith then delivered to the saints. Profess submission to the divinely appointed ordinances of the gospel, approbation of the church order which Christ himself instituted, and authorized his ministers to observe together with holiness of conversation were positive terms of communion in the primitive Christian church. We shall be told the principal term was believing in Christ, which is certainly much more simple than the very complex and intricate terms of later times. But however specious this objection may at first sight appear, if closely examined, it will be found to be the fruit of inattention. While we speak of believing in Christ, the glorious object of faith must be considered in the same light, 
in which the sacred scriptures reveal him, and not as every individual may think proper to paint him in his own imagination. Who, then, is the scripture Christ, in whom we are to profess our faith, in order to our being admitted into the fellowship of his church? He is his Father's equal. I and my Father are one. The eternal Son of God, God sent forth his Son, Emmanuel, i.e., having the two distinct natures of God and man closely united in his own divine person, of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Set up from everlasting and voluntarily undertaking the great work of redemption as the covenant head and surety of his people. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, Jesus was made a surety of a better testament. Lo, I come. Destined in the eternal purposes of heaven to undergo all those sufferings which he actually underwent and in the very same manner too. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done, actually manifested in the flesh at the time appointed, made under the law and suffering substantially the same punishment which his people's sin deserved, though himself without sin, in order that he might redeem them from the curse. When the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. The author and finisher of that law-magnifying righteousness, which is imputed to the believer for his justification, by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. In a word, the prophet, priest, and king of his church, a prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. He is given to be head over all things to the church, which is his body. Strip the glorious object of our faith of any one of the above precious characters, and you present unto us another Christ than the scriptures reveal and, therefore, one with whom Christians have nothing to do. Suppose, then, any should come unto us denying the proper divinity of Christ, his eternal sonship, incarnation, substitution in the room of his people, or any other of his peculiar properties. We could not consistently receive them. Even the apostolic term of admission, if thou believest with all thine heart, when taken in the true spirit and scope of it, would oblige us to insert in our terms of communion the precious articles opposed, or to exhibit and require assent unto some plain summary of divine truth, evidently comprehending these 
and whatever other things may in a special manner be called the word of Christ's patience. Considering then their consistency with the great and general principle on which all societies in the world find it necessary to act, the express injunctions of the Holy Spirit concerning unity of sentiment and profession, the doctrine of our Savior in his epistles to the Asiatic churches, and the divinely authorized practice of the apostolic church. We cannot well refuse the propriety of having explicit terms of admission to the privileges of the gospel church in the times wherein we live. Having said thus much, with respect to the terms of communion in general, it will now be necessary to turn our attention unto our own terms, in particular, and to offer a few remarks upon them as they lie in order. Explanation and Defense Terms of Ministerial and Christian Communion Agreed Upon by the Reformed Presbytery 1. The acknowledgement of the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments to be the Word of God and the alone infallible rule of faith and practice. 2. The acknowledgement of the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms Larger and Shorter to be founded upon and agreeable to the Word of God. 3. The owning of divine right and original of Presbyterian Church government. 4. The acknowledgement of the perpetual obligation of our covenants, National and Solemn League, and in consistency with this, acknowledging the renovation of these covenants at Arkansas 1712 to be agreeable unto the Word of God. 5. The owning of all the scriptural testimonies and earnest contendings of Christ's faithful witnesses, whether martyrs under the late persecution or such as have succeeded them in maintaining the same cause, and especially of the judicial act, declaration, and testimony emitted by the Reformed Presbytery. 6. Practically adorning the doctrine of God, our Savior, by walking in all his commandments and ordinances blamelessly. On Article 1, the first of these terms respects the scriptures of truth as the alone infallible rule of faith and practice. Considering that we live in a land of gospel light and are addressing ourselves to Christians, it is hoped that our readers in general will admit the propriety of this article. And never, surely, could it be more seasonable than in this day of trouble, rebuke, and blasphemy, when deistical opinions are making very alarming progress amongst mankind. Besides, it must ever be remembered that the sacred institutions of the Gospel Church are to be found nowhere else but in the Holy Scriptures. Hence, a proper knowledge and belief of these becomes indispensably necessary in maintaining church communion. Believing the whole Bible to be given by inspiration of God, we take both the Old and New Testament into the account as the great standard of human conduct in all periods of the church and with regard to all duties in every station and relation of life. We are sensible that the Jewish ritual is now abolished. It comprehended, in general, a system of bodily services, expressly denominated carnal ordinances, patterns of things in the heavens and shadows of good things to come, 
while the substance or body is declared to be of Christ. Accordingly, these patterns or types must all be considered as finding their corresponding antitype in the Messiah's gospel kingdom. Accepting, then, whatever can be properly reduced to this description and can be plainly shown to have been abolished by the coming of Christ, the rest must be viewed as a standing force to the end of the world. Whatever necessarily respects the gracious dispositions of the mind and the inward exercises of the soul or the moral conduct of men towards God or towards one another, whether in civil or in ecclesiastical society, that must still, in the true scope and spirit of it, be understood as meant for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Nay, even from the ancient carnal ordinances, we may still draw many precious and instructive inferences, though these ordinances themselves are no longer to be observed. And we may also add that it must remain still to be the indispensable duty of all Christians diligently to search into the meaning of these ordinances, inasmuch as a competent knowledge of them is absolutely necessary to our right understanding of the great truth concerning the Messiah in the New Testament. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, 
that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.